Hi, everyone. This is Caitlin. And this is Jessica. And this is Calling All Spirits. How are you doing today, Jess? I am doing pretty good. Trying to get into the fall spirit. We bought some pumpkins today and uh, <laughs> trying to make the house a little more festive and kind of get ready. I can't, I can't believe we're already in October. Oh, my God. Seriously, right? Like, yesterday hit and unsurprisingly i woke up with this is halloween stuck in my head from nightmare before christmas <laughs> but i also went to the hall closet and i pulled out what decorations i have and joey went to the store and came home with a pumpkin for me oh that's awesome it was really sweet he actually called first he said do you want a pumpkin and i said sure <laughs> um and then he asked me what if i wanted a small one a big one a tall one or a round one and i'm like in order round would be most important but whatever pumpkin you find. And then I promptly detangled my purple lights from my old fabric that's supposed to look tattered and worn that I put out front. Mm -hmm. And then I put them both in the front entry next to the door and have not put either of them up yet. <laughs> oh, well, you're doing much better than me. My house, we have pumpkins now, but other than that, it literally has nothing Halloween. Um, but all of mine are at work at the moment, so <laughs> they are being used elsewhere, and whatever's left will come back here, but I got to do that. I don't know. After decorating at work, when I get to my house, I'm like, and I'm done. Like, I've been decorating for three weeks. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's hard to argue with. You get exhausted from doing it. I just leave most of my decorations out all year round, so I literally only have what I put on the front porch to put out. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's nothing wrong with that. We went to Spirit Halloween um, for the first time about a week ago. And again, I bought stuff for my house, not yeah. necessarily Halloween. <laughs> exactly. Like I got a new snake skeleton the other day from Michael's when I went with a friend because she needed watercolor paints. And I promptly put it on the bookcase next to the frog skeleton that I've had out since last year. And uh <laughs> Those things don't get put away, so they're just kind of there all the time. I know. Oh, well, you need to go to Spirit because I thought of you. So what's really cool is, like, all the Halloween costumes now come with, like, a purse. So you can match, like, your purse to your costume. But what's really cool is they're themed. So um, there's a bunch of different ones. But for Beetlejuice, they had that um, book, like, the handbook for the recently departed. <gasps> it's a purse now. Oh my god, that's so cool. Yes, and then they had one that was with a witch costume. It's called, it's like the Book of Spells, and it's a purse. So I got the Beetlejuice one, because I'm like, I will just carry this. I mean, like, yeah, I absolutely want that purse. Yes, and they were doing it for all the costumes, which was so, I was like, that is really cool. Like, I kind of love that. That's super handy, too. Like, somebody who's thinking is in charge of costuming themes this year. Exactly. So um, we got that. I got some more glasses for everyday use <laughs> um but yeah and we got my son a ghostbusters jacket which he will just wear around for winter <laughs> like yeah no that's in no way surprising no but it was it was good so yay we're both kind of getting into it yes tis the season for fall <laughs> even if texas doesn't really agree although i have been enjoying the nice chilly mornings like it, yes. it being in the fifties when I wake up in the morning is amazing. I could, I could do without the eighties come noon, but having that that chill in the air so I can open the windows and smell the outside inside the house, it's been amazing for the last like what three days that we've had that. Yes, and and like the humidity has been so like almost non-existent. Oh, it's been wonderful. Like it's, it's been such a nice break from literally. I think 
one of the worst summers we had. And I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think like on record, it was one of the worst ones we've had in a long time. Yeah, no, I, I don't think you're exaggerating either. I'm pretty sure meteorologists have been saying that since like May. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Um, so it's 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 coming. It's like we can feel it. it it's here. And uh, I mean, I'm still wearing shorts all day, every day, but that's OK. At least I'm cold yeah. at first in my shorts. And then it's like, OK, now I'm hot again. Exactly. Like you put on socks with your shorts in the morning and then you just go barefoot after that. It's fine. No, it's great. I'm not complaining. No, I'm definitely happy with it. It's awesome. Well, and I mean, I kind of love that we're getting into the Halloween spirit. And we're, I mean, our podcast this month are really echoing that. So I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Like I kicked off my weekend with uh, watching the new Hocus Pocus 2 on Friday. And then I did Halloween decorations yesterday. So I am very much in the witchy Halloween New Englandy mood, you might say. Well, and that is perfect for our topic today, but I can't help it. I have to ask, what did you think of Hocus Pocus 2? I was pleasantly surprised. Okay. Um, yeah, I did not hold out a lot of hope because mm-hmm. there was something so campy and iconic about the first one. Right. That duplicating that would be basically impossible. Mm-hmm. And I was very pleased that they took a storyline that just like completely deviated into left field. They didn't try other than a few pull through characters mm-hmm. and pull through themes. They didn't base everything on the first one. Right. And I was very impressed by that. Plus, I mean, having more Billy Butcherson is always good in my book. And so I was very happy to see that not only they got the same actor, but... He shows up pretty early and he's there the whole time with a valid explanation as to why. Yeah, no, I I agree. We watched it last night. We finally saw it. And um, I was kind of like you. I had very, like, I want, don't get me wrong. I wanted it to be good, but I just thought. Oh, absolutely. Eh, we'll see. So I, there was, I don't love it as much as the first one, but I, I was pleasantly surprised too. I'm like, I could watch this one again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually did watch it again yesterday when I finished <laughs> The one 27-hour audiobook on our topic today. Um, I needed a break before I started playing with my notes, so I turned it on. And it was... Um, I actually did notice some more entertaining things, like the the automatic vacuums uh, reminded me of luggage from The Color of Magic, oh, which I don't know if you've seen that or not, no. but like the, the character of a technically inanimate object that's completely adamant, like it's a very similar pull-through character. And... Yeah, no, the tone and the vibe were completely new and different, mm-hmm. but in a spectacular way. Like, yeah. it didn't... The only thing I could have done without was the uh, One Way or Another song, because that's overused in movies anyway. <laughs> and having them use that at the carnival, I'm like, really? We had we had, we had, had to go with this overused song? Thanks, guys. I'm done now. Well, and it's so funny, because... That one, it was weird. Parts it, When they first started singing it, I was like, oh, my God, no. But then as I got more into it, I'm like, okay, I'm kind of into it. I get it. The one that killed me that I, that almost made me turn it off, but I'm glad I kept watching, was when they come back and they're like, we're back. And then they oh, just yeah. bust into song. And I was, I looked at my husband. I was like, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, please don't. Please don't. Tell I was me. on a video chat with Bree and we were watching it together while we were in our different houses. And yeah, no, we both paused and we're like, really? Like, exactly. really? I was, it's like, that was like my least favorite. I was like, could we have just taken that little, because it just felt so weird and bizarre. And, um, but, and so I'm glad we kept watching because I really did like it as it went on. But that just, I was like, that was a, I don't know. I, I couldn't handle that part at 
all. Yeah, that part. Fortunately, it was short. Yes, and so by the time goodness. I really thought about whether or not I wanted to keep watching, yes. it was over. That is true. That is true. But I love the backstory, which um, does come into play with our topic today. But I love seeing the backstory of the sisters. And I, I don't know. I loved at the end when they're talking about, like, you're only as strong as your coven and your sisters. And my husband just kept looking at me. <laughs> He's like, yeah. That's absolutely a thing. Actually, it's in Salem 1653. And I paused and I had called Brianna on the video chat. I'm like, this is going to make my brain hurt. (laughs) Based on the research I've been doing and what I already know about the topic and how this is likely to play out, my head already hurts. Um, But they did. But it was it was really well done. And the actresses they cast as the young girls, their mimicking of the mannerisms of the sisters were beautiful well you're right and when i went back i was watching clips i was watching a little bit of it today they're costuming which i did not notice the first time i watched it and then the second time i'm like oh i see what they did there and that is so brilliant so yeah overall again not as good as the first one but i was i was i was pleasantly surprised and i actually i know i won't do spoiler alerts but i kind of cried at the end i'm not gonna lie I got a yeah. little touched. I was like, oh. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was a very pleasant and happy ending. Bittersweet ending is a better mm-hmm. way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I think overall they did a remarkably good job given the pressure that was on it. Yeah, that, that is true. Cause I mean, I, I agree. So I know that's not what our topic is today, even though it kind of is, but <laughs> I, mean, I had it's to not ask. completely wrong. <laughs> It was you're you're just taking the long way around to today's topic. Yes. Well, why we can go ahead and get started. I know I know people are probably very curious and ready. <laughs> or they've already assumed that what we're talking about today is Salem yes. and the witch trial craze of 1692. Um, so I am going to take a quick sideways just because it's hard to get through this without talking about the executions. Small content warning, we are going to talk about the deaths and how they happened, but I am not going into detail. Mm-hmm. Um, just little quick mention- mentions here and there. So just so you're not caught off guard later, that will be happening. Yes. Honestly, to jump off with, anyone who's interested in pursuing the topic themselves, the Salem Witch Museum website has a ton of resources. It's even got education for students and teachers it, as of one of the web pages. Uh, one of their longtime, I don't know if she's a staff member or a volunteer, but she's the one who wrote the book that I pulled most of my stuff from. Oh. Um, where is her name? Drawn a blank. There it is. Marilyn Roach. She spent four decades researching this wow. topic. And she's actually got two books. I only managed to get through one of them because it's it's so well detailed. It is 27 hours long in my library's <laughs> audiobook. Wow. And the other one was 17 hours long. So I only got through the first one. But it was a day-by-day chronicle of the community while going through everything and she starts in the before phase as basically doing what we do all the time where we set up what the context is Mm -hmm. that all of this is happening in and that has such a big impact on it because you don't really think about it most of the time like in 17th century new england a witch was thought to be an individual who sold their soul to the devil in return for the sacrifice the devil was thought to provide this person with material possessions a better life or power or what have you And we think about that part, but the fact that the first witchcraft act was passed in England in 1542, officially defining witchcraft as a capital crime, isn't always talked about. Yeah. 
Um, so, like, with that act, those accused of practicing witchcraft in England or in a colony of England, they were considered felons out the gate, having committed a crime against the government. Wow. Like, that's a huge thing. Yeah. And you also have, like, the witchcraft craze that basically rolled through Europe started in the 1300s. Mm-hmm. And there were tens of thousands of supposed witches who were executed during that time, which, you know, means that with Salem's trial starting in the 1690s, it was happening just as the European craze was kind of finishing and calming down. Mm, mm-hmm. And then for additional context, we really don't talk about this part very much. The English colonies were at war, um, not with England yet. That's not for another hundred years or so. <laughs> in 1689, William and Mary were ruling England and they started a war with France in the American colonies. It was known as King William's War for obvious reasons. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And it tore up upstate New York, Nova Scotia, and Quebec. And war creates refugees, and they were all going to the county of Essex, specifically Salem Village in Massachusetts. Now, because, as a quick aside, (laughs) nothing is simple, and everyone likes to tie themselves to the same names all the time. Like, how many Dublins, Cairos, and Londons are there in the U.S.? There are two Salems. Salem Village separated from Salem Town in 1672, and was then authorized by a general court to tax citizens for public improvements, hire their own minister, and build their own meeting house. And then for modern geographic context, Salem Village is in present-day Danvers, Massachusetts, and Colonial Salem Town is what is now known as Salem. Oh, okay. So when you hear people talk about Salem, especially in this time period, you get to be that snotty brat who's like, well, which Salem? (laughs) (laughs) Like, one did maritime trade and the other one did agricultural practices. Like, which one are you talking about? There's a big difference. Oh, my goodness. I, now I'm like, which one did I find hauntings in? We shall see. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll find out when you yes. start breaking it down a little bit. So going back to the refugees, uh, we know that when people are taking refuge in a place, they kind of create a strain on resources. And this not as anything against the refugees, but it aggravated an already strong rivalry between families that had ties to the wealth of Salem town and the port and the maritime trade. And those families that depended entirely on agriculture. Like Mm. there is a big distinction between the two and they would fight constantly. Additionally, there was also some controversy over Reverend Samuel Paris, who became Salem Village's first ordained minister in 1689. Mm-hmm. And he was generally disliked because he was overly rigid and seen as greedy. Now, Oof. think about this. He was he was generally disliked because he was overly rigid in a Puritan village. That's kind of what it was going through my head. Like, interesting. <laughs> Like, how intense do you have to be as a person for that to be a standard that is exceeded? Yeah, that... Wow. Okay. And naturally, the Puritan villagers believed that all the quarreling was the work of the devil. Like, obviously. Yes. Oh, well, I mean, what else would it be? Of course, right? (laughs) And then, naturally, that's not even all of the stress and tension that is being experienced by the villagers, because in 1684, the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, lost its royal charter. Oh. So they lost their rights to govern themselves, and a royal governor was appointed. And he was, you know, not popular, because he was a royal governor, and they weren't able to govern themselves anymore. Right. Not good. No. And right before the 1692, uh, before those trials start, they do get their new charter from the royal couple. But they have that, you know, chunk of time while tensions continue to break and fracture the city apart. 
I mean, even before 1692, there were others who were being accused and tried for witchcraft. Uh, the first known execution for witchcraft in New England was in Charleston, a little oh. ways up the coast, in 1648. Wow. It was a woman named Margaret Jones who was an herbalist, a midwife, and a self-described p- physician. Oh, wow. Yeah. So someone probably helping and healing and uh-huh. all that great stuff. The quotes that we see from, or the things that people are having written down, having quoted her, are things like, if you don't take this tincture, you will continue to suffer and you won't get better. Mm-hmm. Which they're like, what kind of ego does this woman have? How dare she say that I'm going to get worse? But meanwhile, we have modern doctors saying the same thing. If you don't take your antibiotics, your arm is going to continue to be infected and you will continue to get sick. Like, right. Was she was she all-knowing or was she someone who understood basic physiology and how to treat injuries and diseases? Like, Yeah, probably the second. Probably that that would be Gosh, where my money is. That's, that's so frustrating. Yeah. Whew. In 1669, another woman, Susanna Martin, was found guilty, but a higher court dismissed her charges. Mm. And then a different woman is charged in her place. There are also cases in 1680, 1687, and 1688. A few years after that, in 1691, uh, right when they got that new charter. Mm-hmm. And then in 1691, right after that new charter from the royal couple came through for the province of Massachusetts Bay. There was a Salem village town meeting and members of one faction in the growing church conflict promised to stop paying the church's minister because they didn't like him. And their ones that were supporting him wanted more separation from Salem town before they split or after they split because there was a legal splitting between the village and the town, but there was still a lot of, like, you know how when things are official, but nothing officially changes. Yes. Like, they wanted to draw more separation between the two locations. And gotcha. those tended to be the things that people polarized themselves against. Mm-hmm. And so while tensions are already high, for all the reasons we've already talked about, Reverend Paris begins to preach about a satanic conspiracy in town. And that's what's working against him and the church in general. Oh. Because naturally what we need in a situation like this is to have the minister you know, pushing for more fear and division by saying, well, everyone who's against me is part of a satanic conspiracy and they're trying to destroy us and the church. Like, they want us all to perish. Oh, my god! Like, dude, calm down. Yeah. Yeah. They may just not be a fan. Exactly. You. Like, like, you can dislike somebody without being part of a sp- conspiracy driven by the devil to take you down. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, come on, dude. Wow. Um, and so, as a nice little turn of uh, fate... In January of 1692, it is his daughter Elizabeth and his niece Abigail that first start having fits. Yeah. So it literally happens in his house. And I don't know what to think about that with the fact that it's a conspiracy against him. So naturally it starts in the house and it plays into his concept. Or is it one of those where because you kept talking about it, your daughter and your niece naturally kind of fell into the situation that was happening because you wouldn't shut up. Mm -hmm. You know, right. But the girls were definitely unsettling to be around, it sounds like. They screamed, they threw things, they made strange noises, and they twisted themselves into strange and likely uncomfortable positions. Oh my goodness. Yeah, contorting themselves is the word that's usually used. And, of course, a local doctor blamed the supernatural, because he couldn't find anything physically wrong with them, and he decided that the evil hand had caused their conditions. (laughs) Wow. Right? I'm just thinking if we operated like these doctors today, like, we're not sure what's right, but it's probably something dark and evil and satanic. So that's my diagnosis. Here we go. Yeah, right? We we hear doctors getting away with strange things in modern times, but we we have come a long way since, you know, your (laughs) leg is haunted. You should do gin about that. 
yes exactly exactly um so yeah things have progressed a little bit at least um thank goodness for penicillin and other antibiotics (laughs) um uh, right after uh, elizabeth and abigail started having fits uh, another girl in a house up the road and putnam was experiencing similar episodes and there was a woman who was yet another neighbor because they all lived in a tiny village Uh, Mary Sibley. She was a neighbor of the Paris family and she advised John Indian, a gentleman who was enslaved by the Paris family. She told him to make a witch's cake to discover the names of the witches. And this was kind of a common form of magic, which is something that basically it's it's a folk magic. And that's where we get to see a lot of the, the tearing apart dichotomy of the time period and the people and the dynamics in their society, because especially reading... Marilyn Roach's book, you get to see how everyone's doing the same activities. And if you weren't liked, you got accused. Right. Or if you were accused and you were generally liked, they ignored a lot of the quote unquote evidence because you were a good person. Like everyone was practicing counter magic and folk magic and trying to, you know, treat problems that they had coming around them. Mm -hmm. The same way herbalism was used to treat a medical condition. It could also be seen as a form of witchcraft and devilry. So like if you ticked off your neighbor, then they'd accuse you of being a witch for doing the same thing they did last Thursday. Wow. And (laughs) and making a witch's cake was one of those things that was honestly kind of disgusting. But you would take the uh, some urine of the person who was afflicted with the attack and you would mix it into a cake and then feed it to the dog. Oh my gosh. And that was supposed to rebound the curse onto the witch so you could discover who it was and take measures against them. I just feel bad for the poor dog that had to eat that. Right? Like why? Because it was, you had to feed it to somebody and you weren't, unless you could find the witch to give it to her, which you wouldn't need the witch cake for if you were able to do that, in order for the process to complete itself, it had to be digested by a third party and they didn't want to give it to another person. I don't know. Oh, gotcha. So messed up. Well, I mean, the good news is it didn't help anything and in <laughs> fact made the girls worse. Oh. <laughs> and uh, spread the problem around. There were two other girls, so we already know that Anne's doing it. And then Elizabeth Hubbard, who also lives about a mile from the Paris house, also started showing an affliction and having the same kind of fits. So in February, so about a month later, give or take, under pressure from the magistrates, because there's nothing like pressure from people who are trying to accuse other people to get you to have a rational discussion, the girls blamed three women for afflicting them. Uh, Tichiba, a woman from the Caribbean who was also enslaved by the Parises, Uh, Sarah Good, a woman who had lost her home and had become a beggar. And Mm. Sarah Osborne, an elderly woman in the village who was described as impoverished and had actually been part of an inheritance dispute for a few years. Mm. So three women who don't have a whole lot of social currency and uh, aren't going to get a lot of support from people in the village. Right. Basically. Right. All three women were brought before the local magistrates and they were interrogated for days. Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good both claimed innocence, but Tichuba confessed at one point uh, that the devil came to me and bid me serve him. She described elaborate images of black dogs, red cats, yellow birds, all uh, suckling or drawing blood from specific witches, and a black man who wanted her to sign his book. Now, this description is used a lot by many of the people accused by witchcraft, like this this black man. Mm-hmm. But it's never really made clear if he's a man of African descent or if he's like an embodiment of shadow. And so he's just very, very dark. Right. Okay. Like that is, n- they don't describe him any further. So we have no idea what it is. Mm-hmm. 
But she admits that she signed the book and said that there were several other witches looking to destroy the Puritans, and all three of these women were then put in jail. <gasps> okay. Um, so unsurprisingly, following this, a slew of accusations followed for the next few months with dozens of people from Salem and other Massachusetts villages being brought in for questioning. Charges against Martha Corey, a loyal member of the mm. church in Salem Village, was the one who caused the most concern because she was a member of good standing in the village and she went to church every week and she was always active in uh, the church society and community. Her being accused caused a lot of concern because if she could be a witch, then anyone could. Like, she wow. became the standard of, like, well, if it's her, then then who isn't a witch? That's a really good question. I'm glad you guys are finally talking about this. Wow. And, like, they were asking everybody to testify and bear witness to whether or not these women were witches. Uh, magistrates even questioned Sarah Good's four-year-old daughter, Dorothy. <gasps> and oh, her four-year-old answers that are kind of halted and timid because she's four... Uh, they counted as a confession. Oh, that is horrifying. And, and pointless. Like, how does that even rationally make sense? It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, in May of that year, the governor apparently decided that they were being a little too hodgepodged and ad hoc about it. And he ordered the establishment of a special court of Oyer to hear and Terminer to decide. So Latin words. But basically the hearing court and the decisions court for Suffolk, Essex, and Middlesex counties. And the first case that was brought to the special court was Bridget Bishop, an older woman who was known for her gossiping mm. and her rumored promiscuity. And when she was asked if she committed witchcraft, Bishop responded, I am as innocent as the child unborn. And that defense is used constantly. Like, honestly, I got so sick of hearing that. I didn't I didn't have a lot of frustrations with this book, but hearing every other person be like, I'm as right. innocent as the child born yesterday. I'm as innocent as a child who hasn't been born yet. I'm as innocent as a newborn child. We get it. Y'all think that that's a standard that we should be measuring things by. I don't I don't care. Um, right. And for the most part, that seems to have worked. But for Bridget Bishop, it did not work. It was not convincing enough. And she was found guilty and hanged as the first person hanged mm. on Gallows Hill on June 10th. Wow. Five days later, mm. a respected minister, Cotton Mather, whose name you've probably heard a lot about, he wrote a letter imploring the court not to allow spectral evidence, um, testimony about dreams and visions, and like the disembodied mm -hmm. spirit of somebody coming to you and causing harm. Right. He and his father actually spoke out against it a lot, and... They were surprisingly mm -hmm. rational, uh, given what else was happening around them and and how much well, uh, yeah. negativity the Mathers catch in modern conversations about witchcraft in Salem. Like I when I first started reading about um, this for this part of the research, his name comes up and I'm just like, yeah, I know he was there and he sucked. But like the more I read about it, I'm like, you you sucked a lot less than the other people that were going around right now. He. Was like he was. He and his father were straight up denouncing the use of spectral evidence, saying that it was better that ten suspected witches should escape than have one innocent person be condemned. I mean, that's really amazing yeah. for the time period. I mean, I mean, you have to give I him do, props actually. for that. Like, I'm really glad that we did this episode yeah. and I read the books that I've read because it changed my opinion on him and his dad a lot, actually, because 
they were being really right. rational, um, even though no one else was listening because the court largely ignored his request to stop allowing spectral evidence. And five more people were sentenced and hanged in July, five more in August, and then eight in September. Yeah. Wow. However, mm. the Mathers' plea to not allow spectral evidence anymore got to the governor. Uh, governor Phipps, in response to the Mathers' plea, and probably in response to his own wife being questioned for witchcraft... He, he then prohibited, right? Probably had something to do with like, it. Like, he's giving credit in the articles I've read. Like, yes, it's because Mather was so influential and convincing in his argument. But also his wife was tried. Like, I think that might have had more yeah. weight than, I, than Mather's rationale. Not going to lie. I, I agree 100%. <laughs> it hit a little too close to home all of a sudden. Exactly. Like, suddenly we need to make sure we're not allowing for the things that are going to skew the angle so that my wife ends up being, you know, tried and hung. So... He prohibited further arrests and released a lot of the accused witches, actually, and dissolved the courts of uh, hearings and decisions on October 29th. And then he replaced it with a superior court of judicature, which wouldn't allow spectral evidence and only condemned three out of the 56 defendants that they then saw. Um, he eventually wow. pardoned all who were in prison on witchcraft charges uh, by May mm -hmm. 1693, but the mm -hmm. damage had already been done because by this point in time, 19 people had been hung on Gallows Hill. A seven-year-old man was pressed to death with heavy stones while being yeah. interrogated. And several people died in jail, with nearly 200 people overall having been accused of practicing the devil's magic over the course of one year. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Like, it's nuts how much happened in that one 12-month period. Yes. And, I mean, there was some attempt at kind of fixing things. Following the trials and executions, a lot of the people who were involved, like Judge Samuel Sewell, uh, publicly mm -hmm. confessed error and guilt. Wow. Yeah. Like, there were people who were actually admitting that they got caught up in what was going on. They mm -hmm. should have, you know, paused for a hot second at any point and thought about what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And in 1697, the general court ordered a day of fasting and soul searching for the tragedy of Salem. In 1702, the court decided that the trials were unlawful. And in mm -hmm. 1711, the colony passed a bill restoring the rights and good names of those who'd been accused and granted 600 pounds restitution to their heirs. Wow. However, it wasn't until 1957, more than 250 years later, that Massachusetts formally apologized. But I'm surprised they did so much so soon after. Like, yeah, I feel like, like that wouldn't have come that quick. That, I mean, yeah, yeah that... Wow. I knew I knew when the state officially apologized, but I, I admit I didn't know about how much was done right after the trials. Yeah, exactly. Like 1697. So like four years later, yeah. there was that, you know, day of fasting and soul searching about the tragedy. Like that was... Wow. Four years is nothing in historical time because normally it takes it, decades. I was about to say. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. But yeah, that was the uh, chaos and insanity of Salem. And of course, we have things that are, you know, people are trying to figure out still to this day what actually caused it. There are conversations about whether or not any of the girls had psychological conditions. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember the name of it now, but there was one that oh, it's a it's a condition that causes hallucinations and muscle contortions but it's under extreme stress that it tends to happen and uh -huh. i mean you heard the prequel to all of this there was a lot of stress going along yes 
And then one of the more common ones that we hear a lot about, uh, I didn't realize that it was published in Science in 1976, but the ergot poisoning, uh, the fungus that can be found on rye, wheat, and other cereal grains. um, Because, you know, according to toxicologists, eating ergot-contaminated foods leads to muscle spasms, vomiting, delusions, and hallucinations, which sounds kind of like what was happening. And the fungus thrives in warm and damp climates, not unlike the swampy meadows of Salem Village, where rye was the staple grain, and it would be stored in places that don't have a lot of airflow, because that's not how storage often works. Right. I think that's the one I've heard the most, is that poisoning and and what led to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've heard the absolute most about that one. But that's why I I feel bad that I can't remember the name of the... The neurological condition that somebody was mentioning as a possible rationale for what was going on. I'll find it eventually and I'll make sure I mention it in uh, the online posts or something. <laughs> you can also all look into it yourself because like I said, there is a ton of research on this. There there are hundreds of articles, Smithsonian, Psychology Today. There's, there's articles and books published everywhere for this one 12 to 14 month period of uh, colonial history in the U.S. Yeah, I know my husband talked about even in law school, they still study. Oh, the, really? The, like They still talk about it. They look at the trials. And in law school, I mean, they just look at like how terrifying this was of how people like you're talking about people could be found guilty due to the spectral evidence and just. But yeah, I mean, it's still looked at. It's still examined um, by historians, but also by study, those that study law as well. I mean, and um, yeah, it's 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 a scary time. It was a it, it was really it's it's terrifying to me. Absolutely agreed. Like it's yeah no. Um, Salem would actually put me into panic attacks when I was growing up. The fact that I was able to calmly convince myself to visit when I was out in Boston visiting a friend a few years ago absolutely blew my mind like if my younger self could see me now kind of moments but like she wouldn't be impressed she'd be absolutely petrified and wonder what the heck had been possessing me because I don't handle Salem well and I was actually talking to my therapist at the Mm -hmm. when I first started reading a little bit last week and I had basically ended up with a panic attack when I tried to go to bed the night before because I'd been fighting a headache and so I had one of the audiobooks playing and I was kind of dozing in and out of consciousness mm-hmm. and so we both decided that that's not going to be the best way for me to research Salem because having <laughs> it permeate my subconscious like that's just going to trigger all the fears I had as a child of yeah. uh, being turned over for being different because that's basically what it came down to and it, it um, really did yeah so no it's still really fascinating to research and I don't regret it but it's it's an intense topic and mm-hmm. I mean, we see it throughout history where anyone seen as other or not able to protect themselves yeah. becomes the target of yeah. social justice, so to speak, mm-hmm. which is very different than actual social justice. Right. Right. It's it's it kind of especially getting into the history, you definitely understand why a witch hunt becomes part of nomenclature as just in common parlance for society where you there's unrelenting just attacks on one person for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, and it kind of leads into the second part of this episode because, I mean, we do talk about spirits. <laughs> and so we're going to look at a little bit of Haunted Salem. And it was so hard to pick because, th- I mean, when I was looking at the most haunted places or the top haunted places, I mean, you're... There were so many to choose from, but I started with three 
And um, we can always revisit Salem in the future and talk about a few more. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's no surprise that Salem is one of New England's most haunted destinations with everything you just talked about and the history there. And just, I would think the energy that is now a part of that land in itself. So it's fascinating. So we're going to talk about it a little bit of it. And I thought this was a little ironic when I was looking into it. The settlement's original name was Nomkeg. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Again, I watched several videos and and they they pronounced it a little differently, but they had a museum that said Nomkeg. So I'm going to go with the museum. But that was the original name. But the settlers preferred to call it Salem because it meant complete or perfect peace, which is a little (laughs) ironic. And it's also no surprise that many believe the hauntings in Salem have ties to the witch trials, which... I think would make sense. So we're going to start with what is known as the witch house, but it's really the Corwin house. That's, but that's how everybody knows it. It's the only remaining building in Salem with direct ties to the witch trials. It is a two and a half story structure with thick black timber and is located in the McIntyre Historic District of Salem. And the foundation of the house was actually established by the Davenport family. (laughs) Not as far as I know, but probably different Davenports. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) If I'm wrong and somebody knows I'm wrong, please write in because that would be fascinating. But I believe it's a different Davenport family. Um, But it was left unfinished. And in 1675, Judge Jonathan Corwin, heir to one of the largest Puritan fortunes in New England, purchased the home and built his stately house. Um, Now, 17 years after. He built the home. He would take part in the most favorite, famous witch hunt in American history, which we just talked about. So along with fellow judge John Hawthorne, Judge Corwin presided over many of the examinations of the accused and their accusers during the witch trials. The two judges were unrelenting in sinking confessions of witchcraft and sentenced many to their death. Interesting enough, I found this. Even the mason of the Corwin house, Daniel Andrews, was accused of witchcraft. So even the person that built his home, thankfully, he was one of the ones acquitted, but he's even accused of witchcraft. Now, Corwin's family didn't escape the witch hysteria as one of his own children was thought to be afflicted early in this outbreak. But here's where it gets a little bad. His mother-in-law was accused of witchcraft. So one of his children is being afflicted, and now his mother-in-law has been accused by one of her, it says in servants, servants was probably one of the enslaved people she had in her home, but she was never arrested, which probably helped who her son-in-law was and that the family had a lot of money, so... (laughs) Yeah, that that makes a big difference in the situation, for sure. It does. I do think it's interesting, though, that knowing he's a judge, that even she's... I mean, it's kind of like no one was above this. Like, they were accusing everybody Mm -hmm. of this. Following the witchcraft trials, Corrin served on the Superior Court and as the judge of probate. But at least from what I found, he never really showed remorse for his actions of 1692. And Mm. he lived his life as a wealthy and well-respected member of society. Now, this is where it gets a little weird because the story of the Corwin family doesn't end there. There is what people call the Corwin curse. Okay. So eight Corwin lives were lost to premature death, 
which catastrophically crippled their estate. So from 1684 to 1690, the witch house was just full of tragedy. So first of all, Judge Jonathan Corwin and his wife Elizabeth had five children that all passed away, many before they even reached their first birthday. So Mm, yeah, infant mortality. Yeah, it was the times, but they did lose five children. So then while they are still living in their house, but they're older, their son, Reverend George Corwin, takes control of the estate, but he dies from a fever in 1717, followed by his wife in 1718, and then shortly after, Jonathan and Elizabeth. So the only remaining family members were the two young boys, George Jr. and Samuel. And it's actually Samuel who would talk of the curse in a journal and remark how death made such havoc among his relations. And after all that, their Corin estate collapsed. So, is it a curse? Is it because of his role in the witch trials? Is it just people got sick back then and they couldn't really do anything to help them? I don't know, but they lost eight family members and the estate just crumbled. So. Wow. I know. That's intense. I know. So, the house still remained and was opened in 1948 as a museum. So, you can actually go visit this home. It was actually, thankfully, saved from demolition in the 1940s. The city of Salem wanted to widen a road, and they were just going to tear this house down. But thankfully, <sighs> citizens raised $42,000 to move it back, like, 35 feet. But I'm just like, as a preservationist, and you get this, it's like the only remaining home from the witch trials. It's like, yeah, we'll just tear it down for a bigger road. It's fine. Yeah. No. Just, <laughs> uh, I'm so glad everyone did that, because, yeah, no, that's so dumb. I know. And then it <laughs> happens all the time. It does. That's what's depressing <laughs> about it. It is. Um, now, for the haunting. So, of course, many people believe the house is haunted by the innocent victims the judge sentenced to death. Others attribute the spirit simply to the Corwin family. So, visitors to the home claim to hear disembodied voices, feel cold spots, and even have captured strange, fi- strange figures on film. Staff of the museum often hear and see things in the home when they are alone including phantom footsteps upstairs. We've experienced that. (laughs) Yeah, that one's exceptionally disconcerting to experience. So, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Eerie whispers and shadows. So they see shadow figures. Some staff and visitors have even heard their name called when they're alone. Um, Another guide witnessed a tin sconce fly off the wall when she was speaking about the accused of witchcraft. Another tour guide shared, and I quote, There is nothing malevolent here. It's subtle things. Sometimes we think we hear footsteps above us in the attic when nobody is in the house. A tour guide and myself were setting up for a night. The door was locked and we did hear a shuffle. So it sounds like you're pretty common. Footsteps, shadow figures, and so forth. Which we say common, but those can all be very scary when you know you're alone in a house. Oh, absolutely. Like we're, we say common because they happen as kind of the most consistent forms of spirit presence that we hear about but yeah no that's that's not to take away from how exceptionally scary it is to experience them when you're by yourself yes exactly i have had my name called once and that was probably one of the creepiest because i heard it enough that i thought it was somebody in the home with me and when you discover it's not mm, very disconcerting (laughs) 
Yeah, I believe that. I haven't had my name called, thankfully. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, some mediums and psychics that have toured the home believe there is an angry male in energy lingering on the first floor, as well as the residual haunting of two females. And in 2011, Ghost Adventures received special permission to investigate the home. And, I mean, they had to go through, like, this governing body. They had to talk to the city because they just didn't let people investigate. So it was a really big deal, depending on how you feel about Ghost Adventures. <laughs> but if you want to at least see the episode, it said it was filmed in se for season four. I found it actually in season five and watched it. So um, it's interesting, but you can at least see the investigation if you just want to see the house. And so forth. So that is the witch house. Now, the next one we're going to go to is called the Joshua Ward house. And this one's really cool because you can actually stay there. It's a hotel now. <gasps> yes. Really? Yes. It, it looks gorgeous and beautiful. The prices are very expensive. But if you can get there on a weekday, it seems like it's not as bad <laughs> as a weekend. But it, it, it looks gorgeous. So the Joshua Ward home. Is, oh, it's called the Merchant now. Look for the merchant. I'm looking it up okay. now, and it is gorgeous. <laughs> it's, it's oh, amazing. my goodness. So the Joshua Ward home is a stately Georgian-style building featuring federal-style interiors that served as a symbol of Salem's early prosperity. Now, Joshua Ward was a wealthy ship owner, merchant, and rum distiller, and he built a fortune importing goods such as molasses, pepper, tea, spices, and more. In 1784, he commissioned a new home worthy of his station in life and status in the community. And what's so, it just sounds amazing. The home originally had a view of the South River and overlooked Salem Harbor, where Ward could watch the trade ships come and go. Um, it was later filled in, the South River was, so it doesn't look like that now. But I just thought, oh, that'd be so beautiful to just stand out and look and see the water. Um, on October 29th, 1789, President George Washington stayed at the Joshua Ward home during his visit to Salem during a larger tour of New England. During the president's visit, there was a huge celebration where he reviewed the troops, was honored with speeches, danced at a ball at the assembly house, and viewed a grand fireworks display. Now, upon Joshua Ward's death in 1825, the house was transformed into a hotel named the Washington Hotel. But then after standing vacant for several years, in the late 1970s, the home underwent extensive preservation and restoration work. And in 1978, it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And like we just talked about, in 2015, it was once again transformed into a hotel called The Merchant. So be sure to check that out. If anybody from The Merchant is listening, we would love to stay there. <laughs> we, could... we would do a whole episode happily and interview anyone you wanted us to talk to. We are so down for that. Yes, yes. They've done a really, really good job with it. Now, for The Hauntings. It's now while the Joshua Ward House is one of the most haunted and active sites in Salem, to understand the haunting, we actually have to turn to the very first owner of the property. So the house, I know. So the house sits on the remaining foundation of the home of Sheriff George Corwin. There's that name again. Corwin was the high sheriff of Essex County during the witch trials of 1692. So it actually has a tie to those. His position was perhaps obtained through nepotism because he was the nephew of Judge Jonathan Corwin. He was also the nephew of Judge Winthrop, and he was a son-in-law to a whole nother judge. So, I mean, it's pretty obviously how he got his job. 
<laughs> yeah, I think nepotism probably played a part in that. No question. Exactly. Um, now, part of his role was to escort the condemned by cart from prison to execution. He would also confiscate the property of condemned prisoners. He couldn't take their land. I learned that because of an English law. You can't take the land, but he could take the livestock, the hay, the food, household goods. And he was supposed, it was supposed to be used for, for the cost of being imprisoned and so forth. But he would sell off some of it and make a profit for himself, which not shocking that that happened. Um, now, as sheriff, he also, which I, I promise I won't go into details. Now, as sheriff, he also oversaw the execution of Giles Corey who was pressed to death, and we'll leave it at that. Now, legend has it that Corey's last breath was to curse Sheriff Corwin in the town of Salem. We don't have any historical evidence to support this, but it is a pretty long-standing legend for Salem. So, um, Now, because of his role in the witch trials, there are numerous myths surrounding George Corwin, including I read that first his Family buried his body in the basement because they didn't want it to be dug up. People that hated him. Then I read, no, people that hated him stole his body and they buried it in the basement. But as far as we know, his body was never in the basement. So there's there's no history to actually prove that. But I, I saw that a lot of places. Um, so now on to the ghost. So we had to give that little backstory because it makes a little more sense. Um, now course general things people have reported chairs lampshades trash cans candlesticks being moved around found turned upside down paper strewn all about the floor kind of normal hauntings now what i thought was interesting about the this home is they actually kind of have three spirits that they tend to focus on and so the first one is known as the strangler that's what they call him no one knows who he is, but many believe it to be the spirit of Sheriff Corwin, who was notoriously sadistic and would torture those he was interrogating. Over the years, there have been multiple reports of people feeling as if they are being choked while on the premises and almost always on the second floor. One victim said that it was as if someone was holding his throat and just squeezing it. The building's porter claimed to have been grabbed from behind by an unseen force he said, I could feel the hand on my shoulder weighing me down. When I turned around, nobody was there. There are also reports of visitors experiencing a choking sensation in the George Washington's former room on the second floor. One reported, all the lights were out, and upon entering it, my throat immediately tightened up. It was like someone was choking me. I was being strangled, but I didn't feel any hands around my throat. Yet, I felt my throat close up. So that's terrifying. That's the yeah. first spirit for the home. Yeah. Okay, so the second spirit is, they believe it to be of Giles Corey, um, which makes sense since the sheriff uh, presided over his death. Um, now, what they attribute to him is cold spots, books and pictures falling from their shelves, and candles being melted even though they were never lit. And it's said that the candles melt into the and form the shape of an S which they attribute to Sheriff. It, it, it may be Mr. Corey, but this one I'm like, how do you say a cold spot film? <laughs> That's, that one I have, but I, I don't know. If the candles melt without a flame into the shape of an S, I would love to see that. That would be pretty incredible. I mean, it also depends on what the temperature inside the house is, because I had that happen with some 
taper candles I had in my candle making box in my parents' garage. Like they melted into a couple of different letters. Uh, S was one of the more common ones because of how, how it'd be propped up on a thing. If there was a divot here or an upset here, like it's easy to form that S shape depending on where it landed. So I'm curious as to like, did it melt like complete liquid? Right. And then shift into the S or was it just a taper that fell over in like, yeah snakeified very interesting i don't know but that that you make a lot of sense that may be what's happening or who knows maybe not now <laughs> we'll we'll let them decide now the last one is my favorite so it's a female spirit and they have kind of nicknamed her the witch so that's what they refer to her as people have experienced encounters with her in the home one lady recalled, I immediately noticed a strange looking woman sitting in a wingback chair across the hall in another office. The woman's skin didn't look like flesh, but was almost transparent like glass. She looked like a mannequin just staring into space. That sounds terrifying. Mm-hmm. Now, this female spirit is responsible for one of the oddest pieces of paranormal evidence captured in this home. So... It was the 1980s. There was a real um, Carlson Realty was in the home and they were hosting their annual holiday party. A Polaroid photo was taken of a light haired woman enjoying the festivities. However, when the photo developed, there was an image of a haggard woman with translucent skin and frizzy black hair. The picture was actually featured in a book called Ghostly Haunts and producers from Unsolved Mysteries picked it up. And check the photo for its authenticity and showed it on national TV. So this photo has become legendary. And we I've seen it. You can find a copy of it. We'll have to put it on our Instagram, our Facebook. Like, we will share it. It is a creepy picture. I it, It's really weird. So that was in this house. Now, what do you what do you look for when you Google it? I want to look for it. Look quick. up Joshua Ward, maybe ghost photo or ghost polaroid look it up now some believe that the entity at the joshua ward house doesn't care for men so while many while women typically see this woman in black men are often attacked so maybe by her maybe by another spirit but men kind of get the bad side of it they get scratch marks they get this feeling of being choked well, women just typically see the woman in black. So did you find the photo? What do you think? I did. It's interesting. Um, it's not as disconcerting as some of the other pictures that we see of spectral evidence. But I can definitely see why that would be um, not what you expect if you were taking a picture of a light-haired woman. And then you see that kind of chaos around her head yeah. that I can see being crazy curly hair. But also kind of makes sense as... Just like more shadows behind her and her hair is not that big. Yes. And, and there is some debate on this photo now, but it's worth looking up. It's um, especially since it's so famous. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> now, the very last location is the old Burying Point Cemetery because I couldn't end it without a cemetery as much as we love those. Eee! So it's also known as the Charter Street Cemetery and it dates back to 1637. And it's the final resting place for several notable Salem residents. It's one of the oldest cemeteries, um, not just in Salem, but in the United States as well. And when it was first established, it didn't have an official name. It was generally called Ye Burying Place and later the Burying Point. So several notable people that are there, Nathaniel Mather, son of, uh, or excuse me, brother of Cotton Mather and so part of the Mather family, Judge Jonathan Hawthorne, of course, with the Salem Witch Trials. 
another judge of the witch trials, Mary Corey, second wife of Giles Corey, and um, on and on. So a lot of people that are actually involved in the Salem witch trials, but from what I found, none of the victims are buried there because they wouldn't give them a Christian burial in a cemetery because they were convicted of witchcraft. Yeah, there are some stories from families that say that they went claimed their relatives and buried them privately on their own property, but that's all family lore. I don't think we have evidence of anybody, really. No, no, and I couldn't find any of of them. I I did find the information on George Jacobs. Uh, The exception is George Jacobs, whose body may have been found in the 19th century. In 1864, the Fowler family, who purchased a portion of the Jacobs property... Uncovered remains in a grave marked by two old stones. The toothless, tall skeleton was seemingly proof that the Jacobs family had retrieved his body after his hanging and buried it at Northfields. Oh. The skeleton was reinterred. Jacobs was again re- re- exhumed in the 1950s by the town of Danvers and then stored for decades. His b- remains were buried for their final time in 1992 at the Rebecca Nurse Homestead. Wow. That was quite a journey. That was. Oh, my God. Bless him. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, interesting. Um, no. Um, so the cemetery, I thought this was just kind of cool, so I wanted to include it. The cemetery was also a regular haunt for Salem native son, Nathaniel Hawthorne, author of, of course, the classic The Scarlet Letter and The House of Seven Gables. Buried in the cemetery is his ancestor, John Hawthorne. And he actually, Nathaniel added the W to his name to kind of distance himself from his infamous relative (laughs) and what happened with the witch trials. And I love this. You and I would so appreciate this. Nathaniel Hawthorne and his wife, Sophia, would often take midnight strolls in the cemetery when she was suffering from one of her frequent migraines. So, yeah, I can see the a walk in the cemetery helping with the mic. I know. And I'm just like at midnight. I it just I was like, oh, I kind of love that. And um, now the cemetery is adjacent to the memorial to the witch trial. So a few of the hauntings there. Many believe, of course, they have ties to to the witch trials. Not surprising. Visitors report voices, strange anomalies, odd orbs of light, sudden drops in temperature um, sensitives have claimed to have overwhelming feelings of sadness and depression walking through the graveyard. And there's actually a restaurant right next to this graveyard. It's called um, Murphy's Restaurant. And they have had experiences of the paranormal kind that they attribute to their location. They say the back corner uh, closest to Murphy's is a hot spot for activity. And um, they often see a woman in Victorian blue dress. So this would be later than the witch trials that has a young man in pants and a black shirt. There was supposedly a fire, but there's really no proof that there was ever a fire. But anyway, they see a Victorian lady and her son. Cameras will malfunction and um, they'll catch weird streaks of light, orbs and mists. It's also said that one of the former employees was working alone in the restaurant at 3 a.m. And when he looked up, he saw a woman looking down at him, which that would be very disconcerting. In addition to these orbs and apparitions, visitors often report seeing a lady in white. And I wanted to end with her for a reason. So in North Shore Spirits by Christopher Forrest, it's said that the cemetery has been the site of the occasional ghostly appearance of the lady in white. The ghost itself does not typically appear in person. Rather, it often manifests itself in the form of orbs. It's even appeared as a slight figure in pictures taken at the site. They even see her in the parking lot and in the buildings near the Charter Street Cemetery. 
so who is this lady? Many believe that it's Giles Corey's second wife, Mary Corey, who's actually buried in the cemetery. And historians report that they really think Mary was like the love of his life, that he was just so smitten with her. So what people report seeing is they see the lady in white coming from her gravestone marker and traveling towards the area where her beloved husband was met his untimely end. So they say perhaps it's her spirit searching for her husband. And so mm-hmm. that is the lady in white. And that is just a few of the haunts in Salem. Those are very interesting. I uh, I did not know about most of those. Yeah. And I mean, again, it was so hard to pick because there's so many famous ones. Since we were talking so much about the witch trials, I was like, well, let's tie it to to some of those oh very very interesting yeah we'll have to cover some more of them when we manage a uh, a pod family trip to Salem at some point. <laughs> there you go <laughs> there you go oh my goodness there's the hotel there's the lyceum I was just like oh my goodness yes more to explore and maybe we can actually go visit some of these and see them in person yes because like of all the ones that you mentioned the cemetery is the only one I've actually been to because the Witch House Museum was not open oh, when I was there. No. Um, and I didn't know about the Merchant House. So I, of course, went to the cemetery because why yes. wouldn't I? And they do have a very nice little memorial cutout section. There was also a volunteer organization there during the summer when I visited. And they handed out and then took back when you were done walking around printout of information of each of the people who were being uh, memorialized by the different stops. And like it's. A very small area, but it was really interesting, and that printout made all the difference in the world mm-hmm. uh, for giving me historical context, because I am a history nerd, as we've all come to learn and realize. And then, yeah, wandering around the rest of the cemetery, it's not very big. Really? <laughs> like, I have to imagine that if they were walking to help her headaches, that it was several <laughs> walks through <laughs> in a single night, because you can walk around it in less than five minutes without much effort. Wow. So... Uh, but I haven't been to any of the other places, or at least not inside them. And so I definitely need to go back and experience them more. And yes, I need to go. Very cool. Go oh, awesome. Well, that's so neat you've been there. I love it. Yeah, it took a day trip from Boston. <laughs> Fortunately, with another witchy friend. Otherwise, she probably would have thought I was crazy. <laughs> Bless her. To this day, Vanya, I am grateful for you letting me stop at every cemetery we saw. <laughs> I, I get it. Anytime we pass an old one, we were driving through Louisiana not long ago, and there's an old one on the side of the road, and we couldn't stop. But it's like, can we just stop for a second? Just just for a little bit. Like, I just want to go in and see it. Yeah, I just want to feel the area and, and, and see things. And yes, I, uh, I had the same problem in Louisiana, although I went with my sister and another friend. And honestly, we landed, and the first thing we did was Google what cemeteries were nearby <laughs> because they were being very understanding of me. That's awesome. Oh, but they're... But we love them, but there's also so much history in them. There is, and it's amazing history, too, because yeah. like history doesn't happen on its own. Like, it's done by people with people, yes. and being able to visit the people in their final resting places is just amazing. It really is. Well, this was a fun episode. I mean, it was perfect timing with the new Hocus Pocus coming out in October. <laughs> arriving it really was (laughs) and i absolutely had a blast researching it and having that little brain trip of you know knowing more of the history in depth and then seeing the intro to hocus pocus too that was definitely 
Definitely like, wait a minute, this is 40 years beforehand. Okay, cool, let's go. I know, I noticed that too, because I paid attention. I was like, what, where are they setting this? Are we in 1692? Like, I was really curious, so. Yep, it was awesome. It was. Uh, but we also hope that you all enjoyed this episode, because, you know, we, we want you to enjoy the things we're talking about. Um, and if you did enjoy it, please do us the favor and appease the podcast gods by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, while you're there, hit subscribe so you know when we release new episodes. Of course. And also, we want to hear from you. So let us know what you think about this episode, which, by the way, was a listener request. Yes, it was. And we covered it. So if there are any spirited topics you want us to explore in future episodes, let us know. We probably will. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook at Calling All Spirits Pod, or you can email us at CallingAllSpiritsPod at gmail.com. And if you're feeling lucky, you can try one of the afflicted approaches from our episode today, but please don't make me hallucinate or suffer or got poisoning because that sounds awful. Actually, I was thinking which one would be good? None of them. I None can't of think them. of any of them. Just. Just yeah, no. try email. Yeah, contorting Texas. yourself into weird poses. Um, no, no email. Email is definitely the way to go. <laughs> yes, I agree. Aw, and until then, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.